Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Ormo campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Today I want to start by taking us back, a long way back to even before I was born. We're going all the way back to the 26th of December, 1944. I want to tell you about this guy. His name is Hiru Onada. And uh, he was a part of the Japanese army, uh, obviously in the Second World War, and he was sent uh, to the island of Labang in the Philippines. Now, what I want to do is I want to tell you a little bit about this guy's story, because as you hear it, it's uh, hopefully going to blow your mind and help us uh, really engage in what God is going to try and say to us uh, today. So he got sent to the Philippines, and he was a specialist in all things spying, guerrilla warfare, and obviously uh, war. That was kind of what he'd been trained up to do. He was uh, young and in his early 20s. And his whole goal uh, was to go to the Philippines and to prevent the Americans taking the Philippines and then moving north uh, through the Philippines towards Japan. Now, the Americans arrived uh, in February of 1945. So Hiro had been on the Philippines, uh, in the Philippines for just a couple of months. And the Americans very quickly defeated the Japanese. Now, Hiro sensing what was about to happen, that eventually the Japanese army was going to be totally defeated in the, uh, in the Philippines, gathered a couple of friends. He talked to three other guys in the army and said, guys, we need to retreat to the forest. And so he got these three guys on board with him, and uh, in February of 1945, they retreated to the dense forest to begin their kind of guerrilla warfare campaign. Now, within a few months, what they noticed as they were living out of this jungle was that the fighting had seemed to have dissipated. There didn't really seem to be the same level of battle, uh, the same number of troops around, but they continued to fight nonetheless, regularly getting in uh, firefights with the Filipino police, the Filipino army, some of the leftover Americans who had stayed to uh, kind of lock down uh, the Philippine nation during this time. And eventually, at the end of 1945, as many of you may know, the Second World War had finished. But Hiro and his comrades didn't know. They were still in the jungle fighting. The Americans, obviously sick of these guys nagging at them, you know, burning down farms and getting into firefights, decided that it was time to let them know that the war had ended. And so they got some planes to fly over the dense jungle areas and actually to drop letters that had been written by high-ranking Japanese commanders and officials informing them that the war was over and that they could surrender. Hiro and his men found these letters, obviously, just through the forest. There was no real strategy. They just kind of like threw them out the side of the plane and just hoped that they would find them. And they found a few of these letters, and Hiro and his friends decided to study them, to really read them, to make sure that they were legitimate. Unfortunately, uh, there was a few errors through the letters, and so Hiro and his friends decided that this must obviously be American propaganda. They decided it was all totally false, and they stayed in the jungle. Four years later, uh, one of Hiru's uh, friends, one of his fellow soldiers, actually decided that he'd noticed that there wasn't really any fighting. In fact, the American troops had seemed to have moved on, that maybe the war was over. And so he decided to leave Hiru and the other two men uh, who were a part of the company, and he walked out of the forest waving his white flag saying, I'm I'm done, I surrender. I don't think the war's happening anymore, I want to go home, I'm out of it. 
But for the next 23 years, Hiru and his comrades continued to live in the jungle, fighting. And over the next 23 years, the other two men that Hiru was with, unfortunately, were killed in firefights with the police and the army. So Hiru, in the year 1972, 27 years after the Second World War had finished, was left in the jungle, still fighting. Now, Hiru became a bit of a, uh, a tall story. He almost became like the abominable snowman or Bigfoot over in Japan, this lone soldier that was still out there fighting a war that had ended nearly 30 years earlier. Was he real? Did he actually exist? And this man uh, named Nurio Suzuki decided that he was desperate to find him, so much so that he said, I actually want to find Hiru more than I want to find Bigfoot. He's like, I am so desperate to find this man. So he flew into the Philippines, and this is the part that I find so ridiculous. Within three days, he found Hiru. 29 years, the Philippine army and police had never been able to find him. This guy, three days just walking through the jungle, bumps into him. Like, ridiculous. Can you imagine? And he found him and he asked, Hiru, why have you not surrendered? And Hiru's response was this. He said, I will never surrender until I've been relieved of my duty. Because when I signed up for this, I swore I would never surrender. Never surrender. So eventually, uh, this guy Nurio went back to Japan and explained the situation. They found Hiru's old commanding officer from nearly 30 years earlier. They flew him out to the Philippines. They found Hiru in the jungle, and the commanding officer finally relieved Hiru of his duty. And so finally, Hiru, on the, on the 9th of March, 1974, 29 years after the Second World War had finished, finally surrendered. 29 years Hiru spent out in the jungle. And I'm 29 years old at the moment. I know it probably doesn't look it. I probably look a little bit older than that with the moustache. I get it. And the receding hairline, definitely. <laughs> but I'm 29 years old. And it blows my mind to think that for 29 years, Hiru was out in the jungle, fighting a war that didn't exist, living a life that he didn't have to, solely because he was unwilling. I don't even know. He probably wouldn't have found a flag this big. Hannah has made it ridiculous for me because I'm at 6 p.m. tonight, and apparently she's like, it's a big stage, you need a big flag. But I'm worried it's going to actually take me off the stage later tonight when I feel it all out. But he wouldn't come out and wave a flag. He wouldn't even, you know, take a singlet off his shirt, tie it to a stick, and just come out after just five or six years and go, you know what, I'm over this. The Filipino jungle is not the place that I want to live my life. I surrender. I give up. But at the same time, I kind of get it. Surrender for him would have been a scary experience. He thinks he's at war. He thinks there's other people who want to take him captive, who want to force their will upon him, who want to maybe torture him and get information out of him, maybe try and kill him. At the very least, probably take him back to America and try and Americanize him. And he was a, a big uh, you know, guy who held on to the prestige of Japanese culture. He was like, surrendering to these people would be the worst thing I could do. It would actually be a worse life, a worse experience than living in the Filipino jungle. But I always wonder how his parents felt 
how his friends felt, kind of knowing and hoping that maybe he would just come home, that maybe he would wave the white flag and surrender. But it's easy for us to sit here 29 years later, well, another, like, what, 40 years after he surrendered, and go, why wouldn't you just do it? It wasn't that bad. The war was over. They would have just sent you home. But I think we can realize that surrender is scary. The idea of surrendering to someone or something outside of ourselves is a scary proposition. It was scary for Hiro, but it's scary for us. And it's something that we ourselves don't even aspire to. I mean, if I was to ask you right now, if you were to imagine yourself, you know, in a war situation or in a battle, some gladiator duel, no one here would be imagining themselves coming out straight away and being like, you know, it's the first day of war. I can't wait to go out and wave the white flag. I can't wait to just surrender to the people who are fighting against me. I can't wait to that guy. I know we were just started, guys, but I'm already giving up. Come on, let's go home. Like, no one's imagining themselves doing that. No one wants to be the person surrendering, waving the white flag. If I was to ask you, you'd probably tell yourself that you're Russell Crowe in Gladiator or Mel Gibson in Braveheart or Sylvester Stallone in Rambo, you know, those one-man wrecking crews. You're the person who would go out there and win the war, take the battle. You wouldn't be the person to surrender. Because surrender is scary. Surrender doesn't fit the heroic narrative that we often want or dream for ourselves, but all of us feel the fear. All of us feel the worry. All of us feel the nerves when it comes to this idea of surrendering. I mean, think about it. You can see it in just small moments. My wife, she will regularly come up to me and say, Ben, close your eyes. I want you to try something. And I wish she was here this morning because she would attest to this, but my wife is a prankster. And so every time she does that, I am standing there with my eyes closed going, I have no idea what is about to unfold. She is either trying some new recipe, which means this could be delicious, or she has deliberately concocted some disgusting remedy that she just wants to see my reaction to. And genuinely, I can feel my heart rate rise. I can just stand there going, when is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? And what is going to happen to me? That idea of surrendering even just to my wife to just try a little food that she wants to give me is a scary proposition let alone when maybe a friend, a family member, or someone around us says, hey, I've got something that we should do. Trust me. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself at a bungee jumping place or a skydiving resort or in the middle of a basketball court losing musical chairs to a 12-year-old. You know, like, you find yourself in a myriad of places where you go, why did I let myself do this? And we feel it. You would all know it, that sense of apprehension, anxiety, nerves. It's because naturally, none of us enjoy the experience of surrendering. And I think there's probably three main drivers for us. Sometimes it'll be because of all three of these things. Sometimes it'll just be one of them uh, that really makes us apprehensive or scared about this idea of surrendering. Firstly, I think none of us here really like to lose our sense of power lose this sense that we are in charge, lose this sense that we can change our circumstances and our situations, lose this sense of actually I am determining what it is that I will do with my time and do with my life. We feel like if we let go of our power and submit to someone else's, we're in a scary place to be. See, when we feel powerless, we don't like to surrender. 
The second reason is often we don't know other people's hearts. Now, I know my wife loves me, but I don't know whether she's going to try and find joy at my expense or want me to enjoy something uh, with her as well. We don't always know the heart of other people. And that's what makes it nerve-wracking. I don't know about you, but I often try to live in such a way that I believe the best about others. You know, I want to walk through a room and just be like, I believe the best about every single one of you. But at the same time, we have this experience that tells us that sometimes people will do the worst things to us. You know, sometimes people don't have our best intentions at the center and core of their heart. And so we walk around trying to believe the best, but also expecting the worst, and it makes it difficult for us to surrender when we don't really feel like we trust the motivation and heart of the other person. And the last thing I think that makes it difficult for us is that we wonder if the other person actually knows how to make our life better. See, we often hold on to our dreams and ideas. We have grand pictures of how our life could be and should be and how we want it to be. And when we take a moment for someone to say, hey, I actually have something that I think you should do, or I actually have an option that I would like to invite you to partake in, we often can wonder, do they really know what's best for me? Do they really have the perspective that they need? Do they really have the insight that they need? Do they really have the right vision and dream for my life? Do they really have the wisdom to know what it is for me to live the life that I want to live? Whatever it is, these three things, I believe, drive us to struggle with surrender, drive us to find the idea of surrendering to someone or something other than ourselves a scary proposition. And I think these three things can also be factors that we find in our relationship with God, can be what makes it difficult for us to continually surrender to Him. It can be easy to say, I trust God is good, I trust God is kind, but the actual experience of going, God, I really, totally surrender my life to you, do with it what you want, is a scary proposition. I remember talking with some of my friends when we were kind of in our late teens, early 20s, navigating what does it look like for us to follow Jesus. And I remember having a conversation with my friends and they said, I really don't know if I want to totally give my life to Jesus. I remember hearing that and being like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Like at that time I just started in a ministry. So basically I thought everyone should be a pastor because it's the best thing you could ever do. I loved Jesus and I just wanted to do all of that all of the time. And hearing my friends say that, I was like, what do you mean? You don't want to totally surrender your life to God. And what I heard from them totally opened my vision on my eyes and my perspective on this whole thing. One of them said to me, they said, I'm terrified that if I give my life to God, something terrible will immediately happen. Now, when we were younger, you know, um, Bethany Hamilton, that soul surfer girl, uh, well, she was basically this kind of like, I think it was late teens that happened to her. She went through this experience where she was surfing one day and a shark attacked her and kind of like took her arm uh, off her. So she lost her arm. And... um, It was an incredible story, went all around the news, and she used that um, to be an opportunity to share about God and how he loves her and her faith in Jesus and that God's going to work all things together. She gets back in the water and surfs. There's a whole movie about it that you can watch called Soul Surfer, all this sort of thing that comes from it. And their fear was that God would make something like that happen to them. And I realized they were having one of these moments. Do I really trust God's heart for me? Do I really trust God knows what's best for me? Do I really trust that God's going to use his power for my good? They're having those moments. And another friend said, I I don't want to be that person who's like, God, I give you my life, but please, please don't send me to Africa or Asia or one of these places. And then I'm going to have that story where I'm like, well, the last 20 years I've lived in Africa, even though I said to God, I don't want to. You know, like they were worried that they were going to have those 
sort of experiences. What I realized was that they were facing the same questions about surrender. Can I trust God's heart? Can I trust his wisdom? And can I trust his power? They found surrender to the creator of the heavens and the earth a scary proposition. And I think for many of us, maybe not today, but in our past or maybe in our futures, we will have faced moments or will face moments where we might find this idea of surrendering to him again a scary proposition. But while surrender is scary, I also wholeheartedly believe that surrender is necessary. It's something that's critical to each and every single one of us walking and following Jesus wholeheartedly. So we're going to just quickly look now at a a passage in Matthew, uh, chapter 16, verses 24 to 26. This is Jesus, I, I believe, talking about why surrender is so important, so necessary for us. Because I actually believe that if we don't choose to surrender, then just as Hero lost the life that he could have lived, spending 29 years in the Philippine, uh, Filipino jungle, we actually have the, the opportunity to lose the life that God has in store for us. So Matthew 16, 24 to 26, it says this, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And this is the key verse. This is the one that I really want us to just focus on. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Let me just read verse 25 again. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me will find it. Now, the word lose here in uh, the original language that it was written in is often also translated throughout the Bible as the word perish or destroy. And the reason I think that is important is because we can read that passage and think, if we try and save our lives, we'll lose it. And we think of lose as in something that has been lost that we can easily find again. But the better way to understand this is that we will lose it, as in it will perish or it will be destroyed and we won't be able to to restore it. So what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, for whoever wants to save their life will have it gone. But whoever loses their life, whoever lets go, lets their life perish, is destroyed, their life for me will actually find it. See, what Jesus is saying is that if you are determined to keep your life, you actually end up losing it. But if you're willing to lose it for him, you'll find it. And if we take that back to Hiru in his story, We see that Hiru was so determined to keep his life, to keep his honor, to keep his word, that he actually spent 29 years losing it. He left in his early 20s. Is there anyone here in their early 20s, like 21, 22, somewhere around there? A couple? Okay, great. Well, let's just imagine you're there. Hiru came back from the Filipino jungle in his 50s. Like, Talk about a whole chunk of your life, over half of his life, wasted in the Filipino jungle because he was unwilling to surrender. He lost that chunk of his life. And for me, this challenge or this reality came to, I guess, a a head when I did the whole journey of coming up here to uh, accept the job of Gateway. See, I had a life down in Ballarat. I know that's probably hard to imagine, having a life in Victoria, particularly at the moment, very hard to imagine having a life down in Victoria. My brother lives in Melbourne, and he's like, guess what, I get to go outside for two hours today. And I was like, wow, that must be a real hoot, man. I uh, 
went to the basketball and I went out for breakfast yesterday, I went for a bike ride, all of that sort of stuff. I went out for hours at a time. It's uh, one of the key moments. I'm like, thank you, Jesus, for bringing me up here. I'm glad I'm not down there. But I had a life back in Ballarat. I had friends back in Ballarat. Again, probably hard to imagine. I had friends back in Ballarat. All those sort of things. My family back in Ballarat. I had all of that. I had dreams. I had ideas. I had things that I thought I wanted. And when God came knocking on my door to be like, Ben, I think it's time for you to move to Brisbane, it was something that I had a say in. It could have been very easy for me to say, you know what, I'm actually going to save the life that I have here. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to hold on to this life. I like it here. I like my friends here. I like being close to my family here. I like the church here. You know, I've been in this church for 25 years. They all know me. They all respect me. They all like me. That's easy. This is great. I can stay here. But if I stayed there, we can see very clearly I would have lost this. I wouldn't have been able to come back to Jason six months later and be like, hey, you know that youth pastor job? Actually, I kind of would like it now. He'd be like, no, sorry, we've hired someone else. It's gone. This whole life that I get to live now would have been lost if I tried to save my old one. But I went through the difficult decision to surrender to God's will, say goodbye to my friends, goodbye to my family, goodbye to my girlfriend, and move up here to Brisbane, to a place where I knew no one, I had no friends. I lived with my auntie and uncle. Uh, my nine-year-old cousin let me have her room in that house, and I slept in a room that had a unicorn painting on the wall. You know, like, it was difficult. It was a real, real, real surrender. They did have a pool, though, so that was a real step up for my world. But this whole idea of surrender was, was happening right there. This whole principle of if we try and save our life, we will lose what God has in store for us. But if we're willing to let our old life be gone, perish, destroy, go behind us and step into what God has for us, we find the life that he has always wanted for us. So that's why surrender is so necessary for us. But it's also why surrender, I actually believe, is something that is safe for us to experience. Because Jesus promises that if you're willing to let your life perish and say, Jesus, I want the life that you have for me, you will actually find true life. You know, a life that was intended for you, a life that is caught up in his purpose, a life that is caught up in not just what's going to happen for you, but what's going to happen for humanity, for creation, for eternity through you. That is what God is offering if we are willing to surrender to him. While surrender is scary, when we surrender to him, it's safe. Because not only does God promise that if you surrender to him, you will find the life you were created for, I actually believe God in his word does everything he can to remove these obstacles that make surrender so scary for us. I actually believe God tries to show us and, and help us see that he has wisdom for us, that he has power for us, and that he can be um, trusted with his heart for us. We actually see just a few little stories throughout God's word that, that illustrate this. Firstly, we see an example of how we can trust God in his wisdom. Now, there's this guy named Job in the Old Testament. He lives a pretty good life. God says that he's one of his most faithful men, someone who truly loves him. And his life's great. He's got a whole bunch of kids, a whole bunch of land, a whole bunch of stock, and a, and a wife and great friends. He's got life set up. But he has this experience where God seems to let, well, God does let Satan just go against him, cause havoc in his life. And basically, Job loses his health, his wealth, and his family, loses everything that he held dear to him. And Job gets to this moment where he actually begins to ask and question God, cry out to God and be like, God, how could you let this happen? Why has this happened to me? You know, all these big questions. Basically, God 
Are you actually really fit to be in charge of my life? God, are you actually really fit to be in charge of creation, of, of all of the universe? Are you actually fit, wise enough to be in charge? And we see God, eventually, in chapter 38, after a lot of Job's complaining, responds. Now, I don't know about how Job felt when this happened, but I would not have been too impressed when it started. I've been a bit like, oh no, what have I done? Because we see that actually God says here in, in Job chapter 38, and I just want to read a few verses because it gives us a glimpse into what God says to Job and how he speaks to him. He says, the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm and he said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? And that's just the first sentence. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. And that's just the first seven verses of what God speaks to Job over the next four chapters. Basically questioning him on, where were you when all of these things were created? How are you keeping them in alignment? Basically, God spends four chapters going to Job, how dare you question me? I'm large and I'm very much in charge of all that's happening around here at this moment. Why would you question me? See, while Job in that moment beforehand couldn't understand what was happening and why God would let something like that happen to him, God very quickly reminds him that he is in control, that he understands what's happening, and that he has the best intentions and the best way forward for Job. See, we see at the end of the book of Job, in chapter 42, after God has finished explaining and reminding Job of who he is and his qualifications to be in charge of Job's life and be in charge of all of creation, he finishes by blessing Job in such a way that it actually says that God blessed Job in such a way that the latter part of Job's life was more blessed than the start. See, God in his wisdom knew what he is doing. God ultimately restores everything to Job plus more. And so we can trust that God is wise enough to handle and control our lives. See, we can surrender safely to God because we can trust firstly in his wisdom. Secondly, we can also trust God's heart for us. There's a guy named Abraham. Many of you may have uh, heard of Abraham, but basically Abraham has this experience where God takes him, says, Abraham, you are going to be the father of nations. Abraham's like, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm 90 years old, so is my wife. We don't have any kids. Probably a bit hard uh, to give birth right now. And uh, God says, don't have such little faith. Eventually they get blessed with their son, one and only son. What does God do? God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son. I don't know about you, but that would be an incredibly confusing experience. God, you've asked me. Well, not even asked me. You've told me I'm going to be the father of all nations. God, you've told me that I would create a great family, create a nation, a lineage. I have one son, and you want him to die. What's going on here? What is your heart for me? I think you could imagine that maybe this, you would think, is one giant cosmic prank at your expense. God set me up. He's got my hopes up. He's got my dreams up. He's created the child that I need to see this come to fruition. And now he's going to die? Does God really love me? Is God really for me? 
But what we see in this story is that actually God provides what Abraham needs at the moment. In fact, God says, Abraham, I see that you are faithful. I see that you still surrender to me, even when you were probably questioning in your heart my motivation for you. And God provides him a, a ram uh, in the picket and gets sacrifices the ram rather than his son, thank goodness. But we see God blesses Abraham and creates the nation of Israel through him. And we actually see that God's heart for Abraham was always good. And we see it through his provision of the ram. He didn't actually make Abraham have to sacrifice his own son. And I believe that for us, we can trust God's heart by looking at our life and being reminded of all the ways he has provided for us. But there are some days when we feel like, you know what, I don't know if I can see God's goodness in my life right now. I don't know if I can see how he has provided for me. When we get stuck in those moments, it's so important to turn to God's word and hear how God describes his heart for us. See, Romans 8, 28 says, we know that in all things, God works for the good, for the good of those who love him. Romans 8, 31 to 32 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things. And then John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So you can trust the heart of God because his heart is for you. And if you can't see that in your life, you can see it in his word. You can trust the heart of God because his heart is for you. See, surrender is safe because we can trust in God's wisdom, but surrender is safe because you can trust his heart. Finally, though, we can trust God because we can trust how God uses his power. See, God doesn't make us powerless, but rather he empowers us, empowers us. And that's one of the difficult things for us to understand about surrender. So often when we surrender, we lose power. But when we surrender to God, he actually empowers us. And we see that in the story of Moses. Moses famously was a prince of Egypt, and then he murdered someone and ran out into the wilderness. But what we often forget about Moses is that Moses was also a man with a stutter. Struggled to speak, got nervous when speaking in public. I'm sure a whole bunch of us can relate to that. And he spoke with a stutter. And then he has this experience where God says to him, Moses, I'm choosing you. I'm choosing you to be my spokesperson to Pharaoh. You are going to go to Pharaoh and tell him that he needs to let my people go. And we see in the story of Moses that actually Moses gives three excuses why he can't do it, and God gets angry. God's like, why won't you just do what I'm telling you to do? Moses doesn't really have a say because God's like, you are going to be it and you are going to do it, and I'm not going to give you any outs for all of your excuses. You're going. See, God has more power than Moses, and he kind of enforces his will upon him. But we see that Moses isn't just some empty you know, puppet for God to use, but God actually empowers Moses. The transformation that happens in Moses is incredible. A man hiding in the wilderness because he murdered someone, afraid to speak in public because he has a stutter, to being the greatest leader the nation of Israel ever knew. A man walking in power and authority, bringing miracles and plagues upon the Egyptian people and setting his nation free, the Israelites free, from 400 years of slavery, from the greatest power in the earth at that time. God empowered him because God doesn't hold his power over us. God actually gives his power to us. See, that's how we can trust God and his power. 
For us in this day, post-Jesus, we actually have God's Spirit live within us. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives within us. The Spirit full of power. The Spirit that empowered Jesus to walk in miracles. The Spirit that empowers all of the miracles that we see throughout the Scriptures. We actually have that same Spirit living within us. Because God doesn't hoard His power. He's generous with it. He empowers His people to walk in authority. See, surrendering, surrendering to him is safe because he doesn't hold power from you. He actually empowers you. That his spirit empowers you to live the life that he always had for you. His spirit will prompt you to follow him. His spirit will lead you in all truth, will lead you in all righteousness. His spirit will empower you. See, surrender can be scary, but surrender is necessary. But it's also safe because we can trust God's wisdom, we can trust God's power, and we can trust God's heart. But I want to acknowledge that despite knowing all this, surrender will still be difficult. Because we see that for Jesus himself, God in flesh, surrender was still difficult. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is there praying, interceding, speaking to God with such stress and anguish that it says that he was sweating droplets of blood. And what he was saying to his heavenly father is this, he says, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. See, there's a tension there. Jesus is going, if it can be taken from me, please take it from me. I don't necessarily want to do this. Don't necessarily want to go through this experience of suffering and a slow, painful death. I know how difficult this is going to be. But ultimately, he ends in a position of surrender. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And Jesus' act of surrender is what we look to, to know that we can trust in God's wisdom, know that we can trust in God's power, know that we can trust in God's heart, but also to know what God can do with a totally surrendered life. The question that we get left with when it comes to this idea of surrender is that we actually know that surrender is necessary. We actually know that we can trust the God that we're surrendering to. But the question always comes back to, will we come out of the jungle and surrender our lives to him? Will you be willing to come out and say, God, today I'm waving the white flag. I'm giving up my life. I'm surrendering it to you because I know that I can trust you with it. Are you willing to wave the white flag. Because I believe that God is actually wanting you to live a surrendered life. I believe that God wants the best for your life. And I actually believe that you can't even begin to imagine what God will do through your completely surrendered life. See, D.L. Moody uh, is a guy I just want to look at because he lived a totally surrendered life. D.L. Moody was famous for being a 19th century revivalist and evangelist. And he had a famous quote that says this, The world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated, fully surrendered to him. By God's help, I aim to be that man. What's interesting about D.L. Moody was that actually he wasn't a very good follower of Jesus. He wasn't a very good Christian to begin his life. In fact, D.L. Moody uh, kind of went to Sunday school at his mum's request, didn't really care for it, and actually finally got involved and got converted uh, in his like early 20s over in Boston. But what I want to read to you quickly is an excerpt from his Sunday school teacher. Now to clarify, 
Sunday school over there is like adult Sunday school. You go and learn and do some study and stuff like that. Not like, you know, kids Sunday school. It wasn't like he was like in his 20s, like going out there and be like, Jesus is my Lord, you know, doing like songs like that. But actually his Sunday school teacher said this about him because he tried to become a member of the church and they declined him the first time. He says, I can truly say, and in saying it, I magnify the infinite grace of God as bestowed upon him. And this is what he says about D.L. Moody. That I have seen few persons whose minds were spiritually darker than his was when he came into my Sunday school class. And I think that the committee of the Mount Vernon Church seldom met an applicant for membership more unlikely ever to become a Christian of clear and decided views of gospel truth, still less to fill any extended sphere of public usefulness. But D.L. Moody had an experience that changed his life. And he went from giving up his um, lucrative boot and shoe business to actually devote his life to revivalism. D.L. Moody started uh, by working with Civil War troops through the YMCA in the United States. In Chicago, he built one of the largest major evangelical centers in the nation, which is still active 200 years later. And he then began to work with a singer named Ira Sankey, what a name, and toured the county and the British Isles. He went beyond his own nation, drawing thousands and thousands as he would go over there with his dynamic speaking style. His influence was so widely felt that he is actually influential among Swedes. Even though he's of English heritage, having never visited Sweden or any other Scandinavian country and never speaking a word of Swedish, he is a hero revivalist among Swedish mission friends in Sweden and in America. This man, when he came back from England, then started speaking throughout America again, attracting thousands and thousands of people. And D.L. Moody is considered one of the greatest evangelists of the 19th century because he lived a fully surrendered life. And this is, if, is this what God can do with a man who was touted as a man whose mind was spiritually darker than any that had come into a Sunday school class and less likely to fill any extended sphere of public usefulness? Imagine what God can do with you. Imagine what God can do with you if you fully surrender your life to Him. You know, I know it could be difficult. It might even be a bit tumultuous at the start. You might see God uh, just change your career direction. You know, you might see God call you out of something to step into something else. But if that's what God's called you to do, it will probably be the best thing you've ever done. You know, you'll probably also experience uh, just this uh, crazy sense of peace. This comfort that actually as I go through life, the highs and the lows, the storms and the good times, God's in control. I can trust his heart. I can trust his wisdom. And I can trust his power. He's in charge. I'm just living a life surrendered to him. I know he's good. I know he's using me. You'll see God take you every day and use it to bring his kingdom bringing freedom, hope, and life into the lives of those around us. And I believe that you'll see your life be full of love, joy, and peace as you surrender your life to Him and his, as His Spirit breeds the fruit that comes from it in your life. And heck, I don't want to speak too boldly, but maybe someone in this room could be the greatest evangelist of the 21st century. I mean, who knows what God could actually do with your fully surrendered life. But I also wholeheartedly believe that if God can do so much with one life, what can God do with our lives as a community, as a people? I mean, we're already seeing what God's doing just in little ways with like stock the shelves, how we come in together to be a blessing to the community. But a whole community coming before God and saying, we give our lives to you. We surrender our lives to you. It can be a community that I believe can change 
a community, that can change a city, that can change a nation. I believe wholeheartedly that if we give our lives to Christ, fully surrender to Him, that words like revival can be used, renewal can be used, that cities and communities like Ormo can feel the repercussions of our combined commitment. Of choosing to be a church that is surrendered to God's wisdom and following Him obediently. Surrendered to God's heart and letting that heart be expressed into the community. Surrendered to God's power, walking with authority and the miraculous life that He has for us. And I believe that that is God's call to you that is God's call to us. To be individuals and a community completely surrendered to Him. And so my question to you again is this. Will you wave the white flag and say, God, today my life is no longer my own. It's yours. I surrender. I give it to you. Do with it what you will. I trust your heart. I trust your wisdom. I trust your power. And so what I want to do today is I actually want to invite you to do that. Now, I'm not going to give you my flag because someone might get hurt if we are whipping it around through all the pews. But there's some pieces of white, I guess, fabric is the word. I don't know. I don't really go to spotlight. But fabric, let's call it that. White fabric up here. And it's just symbolic. I'm not expecting you to come up here and start waving it around and doing a dance. Like, I'm coming out of the jungle, Lord. But I do think it's important that if you are here today and you go, you know what? I want to surrender my life to God, maybe for, you know, like the first time in the sense of going, you know what, I've been following Jesus, but I really want to completely and wholeheartedly surrender to him. Come and grab one of these. Maybe if it's for you that you're like, actually, I just noticed I've drifted a little bit. I really wanted him to be the focus of my life, but I just drifted a little bit. And I want to come back and say, God, I surrender my life again to you today. I just want you to come up and grab one of these. That's it. Just grab one. Then I'm going to ask you to just socially distance to stand down here and we're going to sing a song together called I Surrender, a declaration of our hopefully heart to him this morning. I encourage you to do this. Come and grab this. Symbolically say, God, today I'm waving the white flag. And so what I'd love to do is just get you guys all to stand. I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to invite you to come down and grab one of these. Stand down the front and we're going to sing together. So Heavenly Father, I pray for each of us. I just pray for those of us who are really wrestling with this idea of surrender, Lord. I pray that you would help us to trust you. I pray that you would help us to trust in your wisdom, in your power, and in your heart. And God, I pray right now for those who are just wrestling with this idea of coming to surrender. Lord, I pray that you would give them courage. Lord, I pray that you would give them a trust in you. And so God, we just pray all of these things in your mighty and powerful name. Would you use us? as people wholly and completely surrender to you. Amen. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and we'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services because everyone who comes through our doors is welcome. You can find out more about our community and locations at gatewaybaptist.com.au.